Good evening. I, I, I got it on tonight, right? All right. Whew, progress. All right, progress. So I think that's the first time out of uh, four that I've actually had the, uh, the, uh, the microphone done correctly, I think. I, mean, I really think it is. I've messed something up all the other three. So, so we are progressing there. So hey guys, tonight is, uh, we're going to be in Judges. Uh, we're going to be in Judges chapter 2. And uh, this, this is a tough text, to be honest with you. Um, because uh, what we see in this text is ultimately, uh, it's a transitional text. Um, it, it picks up where Joshua chapter 24 uh, leaves off. Um, some people uh, or some scholars believe uh, that uh, Joshua chapter 24 and Judges chapter 2 are pretty much the same period of time. Most scholars actually do believe that. Uh, and uh, the transition that's happening is really we're going from a generation that uh, honestly did what they were supposed to and was obedient to God. And then we are transitioning to a generation that pretty much just messes it up over and over and over again. And uh, the reality is, is that when we look at this text, we've got to ask ourselves the tough question, which is what kind of legacy do we desire to leave for the next generation? And that's the question that we've got to ask. The most important thing we should desire in the next generation should be that they walk with the Lord and are used by Him to reach the world around them with the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's obviously more important than anything else. Um, However, um, what we find in this text is, is really three markers in a of a generation that did not follow the Lord. Um, and what I want to do tonight is I want to look at those markers of a generation that does not follow the Lord. And, and I want to just have an honest conversation tonight and apply it to us and ask the question, what can we do as individuals and what can Forest Heights do as a church to make sure that you are effective in reaching the next generation and making sure the next generation follows the Lord and continues the work he has started. So with that in mind, uh, let's go ahead and read verse 6 through verse 10, uh, and we'll jump right into the text tonight. When Joshua has dismissed the people, the sons of Israel went each to his inheritance to possess the land. The people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who survived Joshua. Who had seen all the great work of the Lord which he had done for Israel. So that sounds good, right? Basically, the, the folks that were in the generation of Joshua, they were doing what they were supposed to. They had seen the great work of the Lord, etc. Then verse 8 it says, Then Joshua the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110. And they buried him in the territory of his inheritance in Timnath-Heres. That's one of those words you just go through fast, right? In the hill country of Ephraim, north of Mount Gosh. All that generation also were gathered to their fathers. And here's the problem. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord, nor yet the work which he had done for Israel. So here's two generations, one faithful, one not. One generation who had seen miracle after miracle performed by God, who had taken the land of Canaan, who had... Um, who had seen what God had done for his people, and yet another generation who did not know the Lord or the work of the Lord. So the question is, is what in the world happened? What happened for there be, to be such a significant fall off from one generation to the next? 
Now, having done Next Generation Ministry, or Next Gen Ministry as they call it, whether that be with students, whether that be with college students, uh, I can tell you uh, that obviously each generation has their specific markers that come with it. Gen Z is, is, is an interesting generation. There's actually a lot of hope in Generation Z, though. Uh, a lot of things about Generation Z, like their amount of stress and anxiety uh, that they deal with and the struggles with that is, is really heartbreaking. Uh, but yet Generation Z, honestly, uh, which, is, which is really that generation from college and below now, um, they honestly, uh, they love a good cause, right? Like you give them a cause and they will run through a brick wall for you. So there's some hope there. Uh, there is some hope to solve the world's problems, which we know if we look around and turn on the news, uh, that makes a lot of sense on why we see uh, culture trying to fix everything they assume is a problem. Right? That's why we see that. And so uh, we know that there are distinct markers from generation to generation. The thing is this. The distinct marker from generation to generation should not be that one feared God and the other didn't. That, that's not what it should be. There should be a passing down from generation to generation. So let's look at these three markers if we can tonight and then apply them to what we are dealing with realistically in the culture that we are in today. Another generation, it says. Another generation after them. Now check out these markers. Number one, this other generation did not know the Lord. Did not know the Lord. Now I want to flip back to Joshua chapter 24. As I said, uh, most biblical scholars believe that the very beginning of Judges 2 and Joshua chapter 24 are the same time period. Uh, so Judges you know, 2 verse 1 down through there as Joshua dies. And then you get back here and you flip to Joshua, uh, or excuse me. Look back to Joshua 24, verse 14 through 15, and I want you to, to listen to what it says here. Now, therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and truth, and put away the gods which your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt, and serve the Lord. If it is disagreeable in your sight to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves today whom you will serve, whether the gods which your fathers served, which were beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Now, check out this in verse 24. The people said to Joshua, we will serve the Lord our God and we will obey his voice. So Joshua made a covenant with the people in that day and made for them a statue and an ordinance in Shechem. And Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law of God. And he took a large stone and he set it up there under the oak that was by the sanctuary of the Lord. And Joshua said to all the people, behold, this stone shall be for a witness against us. For it has heard all the words of the Lord which he spoke to us. Thus it shall be for a witness against you, so that you do not deny your God. Then Joshua dismissed the people, each to his inheritance. So there's a call from Joshua to follow and know the Lord and to stay away from idols. That's the call from Joshua. But yet here we find this group that did not know the Lord. So what does it mean to know the Lord then? Well, knowing the Lord involves, one, obedience... Two, commitment. you got to know obedience. you got to know commitment. And then three, knowing his word. That's what Joshua had employed them to do, or implored them to do back in Joshua 24. Right? That, that, that's some of his last words of instruction that he's giving there. But yet here's this generation that says they did not know the Lord. So here we have a group of people who just simply, literally are not being obedient to God, are not committed to the things that he's told them to do, and clearly didn't know 
his word despite the fact of everything that Joshua had made a covenant with them to do. So this generation did not know the Lord. But not only did they not know the Lord, but the second thing is this. They did not know the works of the Lord. Now, this is, this is a struggle to me. Because it says there, they arose another generation after them that did not know the Lord, nor yet the work which he had done for Israel. Now, I want you to think about this for just a second. This is one generation removed from entering the land of Canaan. Two generations removed from crossing the Red Sea. Being given the Ten Commandments. Being provided for over and over again with miracles in the wilderness. And yet they didn't know the works of the Lord. I want to say that again. One generation removed from taking the land of Canaan. Two generations removed from being given the Ten Commandments, from crossing the Red Sea, and being, being uh, provided for time after time again. In our, in our world, I mean, you think about it. Two generations. That's your grandchildren. Right? I mean, so the picture here is, imagine the way that God works in your life, and yet somehow the grandchildren have no idea about it. That's the picture we're given. Now, one, that's scary because, because I want you to think about something. It tells you how, how, how quickly and how far a generation can fall away from God. Doesn't it? I mean, just like that. And, and the sad part is, is that not only does it tell you how far and how quickly a generation can fall from God... But it's clear that the grandparents and the parents were being obedient. That's what it's clear of. So there's a disconnect somewhere. Something doesn't make sense. Well, Joshua 24, verse 31. Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who survived Joshua and had known all the deeds of the Lord which he had done for Israel. You see that contrast? So the generation of Joshua, the elders, the generation of Joshua, they served the Lord, and it's very distinct that what Scripture says is, is that they were the ones that had known the works of God. And then here another generation comes along that did not know the works of God. So here's the picture for me for just a second. What we see is, is a group that did not remember personally what God had done in their lives and in the lives of their parents. They didn't know it personally. Maybe they'd heard the stories. Maybe. Right? I mean, maybe they had just seen, because you think about it. Here's what happens, right? God blesses. God blesses. And, and we get real happy when God blesses, right? And then what happens is, is we get comfortable, don't we? And if we're not careful, I mean, you think about it. You, you think about the fact, I mean, you, whether, it's, whether you're talking about church and spiritual things or whether you're just talking about the world in general, right? I, I mean, there, there's, there's this kind of, this idea that, you know, you, there's this struggle to, to make things better for the next generation, right? And, and, and the problem is, is that if we're not careful, what happens is, is we create a, a generation that is then complacent. Because they get everything they need. They get everything they want. And so then you've got this generation that comes alongside that says, uh, I, I didn't have to struggle, right? I didn't fight the battles, right? I, I mean, that's what happens. And so, so what happens is, and look, we, we're seeing this in Southern Baptist life right now. We are. We are. I was talking to my dad about this the other day. You know, there was the conservative resurgence that, or, uh, that, that happened 
back in like the, the 70s and 80s and really into the 90s, right? Where, where in Southern Baptist life, our, our seminaries had went off the deep end, extremely liberal. They, they were teaching German higher criticism stuff and everything else. There were, we had professors in Southern Baptist seminaries who, who were teaching that the miracles in the Bible didn't have to be true or weren't true. And, and so we had a generation of guys and, and, and a generation of, of church members and pastors and, and, and ladies who, who stood up and said, no, nah, this isn't the way it works. And we had some very contentious Southern Baptist conventions. That's what we had. And, and, and now, my generation, like, we didn't fight those battles. We just grew up in it, right? And so, so my generation has sort of taken it for granted that, that well, man, we, we live in a conservative Southern Baptist convention. That's what we live in. This is great. Except for the fact, if you've paid attention to any of the news over the last couple of years, there's these little infiltrations of things that don't seem quite right. And so there's these little other battles that have been brewing. And, and, and I believe that part of the reason is, is because you've got a generation that has taken it for granted because we didn't see personally with our own eyes what they went through. I believe that wholeheartedly. And, and that's the image that you get here. They had become apathetic. See, what happens is, is privilege and prosperity will do that to a generation, won't it? You, you get a generation that's privileged and a generation that's prosperous, and what happens is, is ultimately you become apathetic. And then there's a slow fade. And before you realize it, you look around and you go, what happened? What happened? Now, here's the reality. They hadn't seen it with their own eyes. And Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 7 through verse 12 is really important. Because if you flip over to Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 7 through 12, I want you to hear what this says. These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. Then it shall come about when the Lord your God brings you into the land which he swore to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give you great and splendid cities which you did not build, and houses full of all good things which you did not fill, and hewn sisters which you, cisterns which you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees which you did not plant, and you eat and are satisfied. Check this out. Then watch yourself. That you do not forget the Lord who brought you from the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery. Starts in the home, doesn't it? That's where it starts. It starts in the home. The warning was given ahead of time. The warning was given ahead of time. Take these things. Put them all over your house. Tell the stories to your children. Right? Because one day you're going to be enjoying the stuff that you didn't really earn. Because one day you're going to be in the land that God has blessed you with. And you didn't do any of the work to get there anyways. And so if you're not careful, what's going to happen is, is you're going to forget what it took to get there. And if you forget what it took to get there, I guarantee you, your children are going to forget what it took to get there. And lo and behold, we turn to judges and guess what? That's what happens. That's what happens. 
How in the world does this generation not know the Lord and not know the works of the Lord? Well, Judges chapter 2, verse 1 through 5, really give us an idea of what happened. It says, now the angel of the Lord came up from Gilgal to Bochum, and he said, I, I brought you up out of Egypt and led you into the land which I have sworn to your fathers. And I said, I will never break my covenant with you. And as for you, you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall tear down their altars. But you have not obeyed me. What is this you have done? Therefore, I also said, I will not drive them out before you, but they will become as thorns in your side, and their gods will be a snare to you. And the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the sons of Israel. The people lifted up their voices and wept, so they named the place Bochum, and there they sacrificed to the Lord. Remember, I said earlier that most scholars believe that chapter 24 of Joshua and the beginning of Judges chapter 1 are the same time period. So chapter 24 of Joshua, the people have covenanted to do what? To be obedient to God, to keep his commandments, and do everything they're supposed to do. But here in Judges chapter 1, what we see is that God commanded them to wipe out the idol worshipers. And they didn't do it. Do do you know, here's the bottom line. Do you know why the next generation was so messed up? Because the previous generation missed the opportunity. Because the previous generation missed the opportunity. The missed opportunity could have set the next generation on a different course and would have protected them from the infiltration of idol worship. Could have. And, and I'm sure that there was somebody in the group that said, yeah, I mean, they're nice people. Why do we got to wipe them out? I'm sure somebody said that. Right? Oh, they're not causing us any issues right now. Some guy probably said, man, but those ladies, they're, they're nice looking. <laughs> I'm serious. And so the next thing you get is you get a generation that's missed it. And, and it leads, we know from the story of Israel and history and, and reading Judges, goodness gracious, it leads to this period of time where the people of God who were supposed to be following God just did whatever they wanted to. That's what it leads to. Because they missed an opportunity. This is where it gets real. This is where the heat in here fits. Y'all ready? Every church in America reaches a place in their history where they come to a crossroads. And they have a window of opportunity. Everyone. Those that missed their opportunity, they eventually close. Or somebody else comes and buys them. That's what happens. That's what happens. Those that take advantage of the opportunity, 
they can impact the next generation. They can. I've never met anybody in my life in a church that doesn't say that their desire is to impact the next generation and leave a legacy. Never met anybody. Never have. But I've met a whole lot of church members at a whole lot of places that have said that that's what they want to do, but they're not willing to take the sacrifice that it takes to do it. Because they'd rather be comfortable. Because they'd rather enjoy their privilege and their prosperity. I want to encourage you as a church. I told you guys I wanted to, I wanted to help you. I, I do. I saved this one for last because if I'd have preached it last week, y'all might not have invited me back. <laughs> um, I want to encourage you to recognize that Forest Heights Baptist Church has an opportunity. You do. Don't miss it. Don't miss it. I told you last Sunday night, I mean, it doesn't take a demographic study to figure it out. The community has changed. The context in which you do ministry has changed. And uh, you're coming off a very long-tenured pastor who did a great job. And it's a testimony to his faithfulness. Um, a church that's coming out of that type of situation usually is the type of church that's at that crossroads. Does that make sense? Um, I don't, I don't know, I couldn't sit here and tell you, here's the, here's the hard part. If you were to say, Tommy, well, what do we need to do? I don't know. I mean, I've been with you guys four weeks, like, or four services, three weeks, four services. I, I, I don't know, <laughs> right? I could probably tell you in a few weeks, but, but I don't know. But what I do know is this, is that you've got some positive things going. You really do. Can I shoot straight with y'all for a minute? We good with that? Okay. I feel like I need like a chair to sit on over here or something for like a stool. So it's like a little talk. But no, here, here's, here's the reality. I, I, was, I was talking to my dad today and uh, he, he was asking me, he said, hey, where'd you preach this morning? And I was telling him, you know, I said, I preached at two different places this morning. And he was asking about Forest Heights. Like he's heard of the church and all that kind of stuff. But he was asking, he said, well, tell me what kind of church it is. And I, and I was telling him and um, and I told him, I said, you know, it's, it's very traditional right now, kind of the way y'all do things. It's, I mean, it's, it's, not a, it's not anything ugly, me saying that. I mean, it's just true, right? And, uh, um, and I said, and he said, well, what's the, what's the demographic in the church? He said, is it, is it mostly senior adults? Are there some young people, et cetera? I said, no, there's, there's some young folks there. I said, there was, you know, some couple families there look like they're my age or younger. And, I mean, there's some of y'all sitting here tonight. I mean, you, you know what I'm saying, like. I was like, no, that's a good thing. It's a really good thing. Right? I mean, most church, I'm being honest. Most churches your size, most churches your size, there's not as many people that, I don't know how old you guys are, but like that look as young as you guys look. <laughs> it's true. 
It's true. <laughs> That's good. That's good. I can only say that for a few more months. Whew. But, I mean, you understand what I'm saying? Like, that's a, that's a good thing. It's a good thing. Because there's, there's certain dynamics at play when a guest walks in. And, I mean, we can spin it however we want to spin it, but that's one of the things they look at. It is. It just is. Right? Um, I saw some children. Right? I'm not talking about 50 or 60 of them running around, but there's a handful of children. The other Sunday morning while I was here and this, this morning, those are good things. Right? That's why what I'm telling you tonight is that there's an opportunity. Right? If that wasn't, I'm going to shoot real straight with you. If that wasn't an opportunity, if it was just all senior adults, you know what I would do? For the last three weeks, I'd have came in and I'd have loved on you guys and I'd have preached some really encouraging sermons about how much Jesus loves you. I'm being honest. I would have. Because like when you're preaching somewhere in different churches, you kind of got to feel kind of you get what I'm saying right and so like I would have I said hey I'm just gonna love on you guys and encourage you and just preach about hey here's you know what let's not forget about the love the grace and the mercy and the peace of Jesus right and boom and we're gonna all walk out of here feeling good and hunky-dory and go eat our lunch and then our dinner right like that that's what I would have done I'm shooting straight but there is there is an opportunity and you've got some pieces in place from a demographic standpoint like you really do, to take advantage of that opportunity. So my encouragement then is, is don't miss it. Don't be afraid to do what is necessary, whatever that may be, so that you don't find yourself in a slow fade. Or worse yet, find yourself at the end of a slow fade. So I would ask this question. What idols do we have that are causing us? This is a general question. This isn't like a Forest Heights question. This is a general question. This is what I would ask if I was anywhere. What idols do we have that are causing us to miss an opportunity to impact the next generation? So really it's actually an individual question. Right? Like this is that take self-inventory of your own life and go, okay, in my life, what idols do I have? Where have I allowed idol worship to infiltrate my life to the detriment of potentially the next generation? What, what is that? Right? I mean, is it, y'all don't have stained glass windows, so I can use that one as an example. Nobody get offended. Is it stained glass windows? I don't know. Right? Y'all get what I'm saying, right? <laughs> I'm not going to say that. I was going to tell a story, and I'm not going to tell the story because it would be bad. Yeah, I am going to tell the story. I'm going to tell the story. Um, So I got in a lot of trouble one time when I was, uh, how old was I, 21 years old? I was 21 years old. I was doing student ministry. I was going to school, and uh, I was, at this point, I'd just been married. And uh, and so maybe I was was 22, I guess, however old I was, 21 or 22. And uh, I was doing student ministry at this little church in uh, Harris County, Georgia. Any of y'all from Harris County? Okay, good. I can tell the story. All right. 
never know. Harris County is a place where everybody knows everybody. So uh, I, was, uh, I, was, uh, I was in a little church in Harris County, Georgia, and we had a pastor who, I mean, he, he, was, he was really trying. Like he was, he was, we were trying to do some things, and we were growing a little bit. And uh, our worship space was the original worship space that it had been. And one of the issues that we had is we were, it, it was shaped kind of funny. Like it, and there was a lot of wasted space in it just because the way it had been designed. Um, and uh, so we had done a renovation project. And when I say a renovation project, it, it was like basically like we changed out some carpet and stuff and moved a few pews around to try to get more seating in and make, like we had like a, one of those empty areas over there to the side. Y'all know what I'm talking about? Like those things, right? And uh, you've probably seen that in some of the older churches that were a little longer, skinnier, and then boom, what is that? I don't know what that is, right? I, I have no idea, right? I like, I'm sure they like looking at my side while I preach. I, I don't know, right? It's like you could have just widened it out out there. But anyways, um, it was one of those kind of situations. And so we had redone our, our platform. And like we were not, this was like 2000 and four three or four something like that we were not like the church it still had a very traditional look to it we were not going crazy on anything like that's not what we we're doing but one of the things that we did is we put uh, uh, uh the steps all the way across because it was a high platform and you had to only like come up a side right i hope i'm not like messing anything up when i say this so i'm just going to say it he started laughing it scared me i'm gonna go over here all right and so so we had a rounded platform, we had these stairs, and so they did all the stairs, and the, the building and grounds didn't think about the fact that like, we had, like you guys, and like most churches, we had like Lord's Supper table right here, right? Well, the problem was, is when we did all the stairs, it was like, uh, uh-oh, what do we do with the Lord's Supper table? Um, because it's now literally in the lap of the front pew. Y'all get what I'm saying? Like, you had to like turn sideways almost to walk by the front pew. A gorgeous platform we had built we just didn't take into account it wasn't anything in, it literally wasn't intentional like it wasn't it was just like oversight and uh so we get in a business meeting and we had these business meetings on sunday nights and uh the only people that would ever show up to the business meetings were the people that would complain about things right like it was one of those situations and so uh jeff our pastor said i know what i'm going to do i'm going to start feeding everybody before the business meeting and that way everybody will show up Especially the younger people, because they'll be like, free food, yeah, I'll show up, and it'll balance the crowd out a little bit. Does that make sense, right? You get what I'm saying? Nice political ploy there. And, and so we eat tacos before this, this business meeting. And back then, I was a lot heavier than I am now. And uh, even, even after I, matter of fact, I guess it was like two or three years after I quit playing baseball, so I already put on like 20 pounds. And uh, I had significant indigestion problems. Just, I did. That'll come up later. And uh, so we get in the business meeting after eating all these tacos. I would also suggest don't feed Mexican food before you're going to have a contentious business meeting. If you have people that have indigestion issues. I thought I was having a heart attack. And so we get in this business meeting. We're like, hey, it's just going to be a fun business meeting. There was nothing on the agenda. We're not doing anything silly. And so we get to the time of new business, and somebody raises her hand. Sweet lady, she raises her hand, and she says, I, I, I've got new business. And, of course, she didn't present it in the way of emotion. And so, like, I mean, Jeff could have been a jerk and called her out of order, but that would have been really dumb, too, and he did the right thing. I was glad I wasn't up there because I wouldn't have probably done the right thing. And so he let her just kind of say her spiel, which was more of just a rant about the Lord's Supper table because what we had done with the Lord's Supper table is that we had moved it remember we had that area over here where there was nothing and it was just kind of wasted space right uh, I told you all about all right and because what, what at one point they had tried to 
turned the, the platform like this way to try to make it, and that was just a really bad situation. And so we had moved the Lord's Supper table over here to the side and put it against the wall. Still in the front, but inside and put it against the wall. Somebody said, uh-oh. Ooh, buddy. And that thing went off the rails for about 15 minutes. And I sat there quietly as this little bivocational student guy who didn't know any better. And, and uh, well, at that point I knew better, but I, I acted like I didn't know any better. And I just listened and listened and listened. And all of a sudden, the next thing you know, there's people speaking for and against this motion to move the Lord's Supper table back to the front. <laughs> so that it can be in the laps of the front row again, right? And so I, uh, Jeff called on me. I don't know why he did it. He says, is there anyone to speak against the motion? Like five people had already spoken. And it was getting out of hand. I mean, it really was. And I was like, I'll solve this. So I said, I'd like to speak against the motion. And Mallory's over there like, Tommy, shut up. Don't say anything. And I'm like, I'm saying something. And I said, I'd like to speak against the motion because we're arguing over a stupid Lord's Supper table. And that sweet lady who really loved me and, like, gave me free food and stuff. Wow. And she even did after that. I apologized to her. She said, I'm sorry, Tommy, but it's not a stupid table. It's the Lord's table. And I could have crawled under that pew. Y'all know what I mean? <laughs> like, I could have crawled under the pew. Now, a couple of lessons in that. How in the world did this really that? Well, number one, I was an idiot. Like, I should have kept my mouth shut and left Jeff deal with it, right? When you're the student guy, always be the good guy. Like, always be the good guy. Don't mess it up. You're always the good guy until you get up. Student guys, side, side note for a second. Have you ever noticed that student guys always start as the good guy and they always say something stupid to not become the good guy? You ever notice that? Right? It's like, dude, why did you have to say that from the pulpit the one Sunday a year I gave you a chance to preach? Like, just shut up and you'll keep getting money from people to take your little trips to go to Six Flags. You know what I mean? Like, come on. So anyways, I was that guy for a minute. And, but, so one, I learned don't be dumb in a business meeting when you're the part-time student guy and 22 years old. But the other thing I learned was this, and, and, I, and I'm being honest this, and this is, and I love that sweet dear lady to death. But looking back at it, honestly, what, what happened in the moment in that meeting is that this table, like, not this table, but the table that was there, like, it had become an idol to some people. Like, it really had. It, not intentionally, but it had. Something that was traditional became an idol. Something that was traditional that was meant as a good thing in its tradition had become an idol. Like, I understand why the Lord's Supper table is here. I understand why the baptistry is there. And if you, if, you, if you look at church history and you look at, like, especially, like, if you compare Baptist to Methodist and so forth, the reason we put this stuff in the middle, like, traditionally is because it shows that, like, that and that and this is really important to us as Baptists. Like, I get that, Right? So something that started for a really good reason, we messed up because we put some chairs or stairs out too far, you know, turned into this thing that created a fight amongst people because something became bigger than 
what it was. The, the table became representative in those individuals' lives of the Lord's Supper, right? But it was just the piece of furniture. And then I was dumb and ran my mouth. And so that's the kind of stuff, if you're not careful, that can become idols that cause you to miss an opportunity to impact the next generation. Because let's be honest about it. If I didn't work at that church at that time and they didn't pay me at that time, I would have never went back there as a 22-year-old. I said, this is the dumbest thing I've ever heard of in my life. I'm out of here. And so many times what happens in church life is that we miss opportunities because we have the best of intentions, but we don't think about the impact that it has on the next generation. So how then do we make sure we leave a legacy of what the Lord has done? If these are the three markers of a generation that missed it, how do we make sure that we're effective in reaching the next generation? And by the way, you know why it's important to reach the next generation? Well, number one, because God's called us to do it, right? Number two, there's that, like, feel-good thing about we want our children and grandchildren to, you know, right? But number three, let's get real practical. If you don't reach the next generation as a church, what happens to your church? It literally dies. Over time, it just literally dies, right? It just ages and it literally dies. So, we ought to want to reach the next generation. So how do we do that? Well, number one, I would say, teach our children. Teach our children. Teach your grandchildren. And what I would say for those of you that are going to have children one day or already have children one day or already have young children, no matter how hard it is, teach your children. What I can tell you is this, is that the worst time of my day is when it's time to put our children to bed and to do our devotion with our family and our children. Because Reese is finally getting to the age where we can get her to sit down. So it's getting a little better. Because at first she wouldn't sit down. Like two and three years old, good gracious, uh, what were we doing? Right? I mean, it was nuts, right? Yeah, you get it, right? Yeah, it's, I mean, it was nuts. But it was like, sit down! But dad, I'm in my bedroom. There's a toy over there, you know? And then Madison is like, we're reading the Bible. Everybody hush. You know, because she's 14. And she's like, give me my little notepad and I'm going to journal. Y'all know what I'm saying, right? I mean, that's a good thing. It's not a bad thing. But, I mean, you know, she's like, everybody else hush. And then Cooper, if, if you ever meet my Cooper, all you have to do is be around him like 30 seconds and you go, this kid is nuts. He is awesome and amazing, but I'm glad he's not mine. Like, that's Cooper. Like, you get what I'm saying? Like, everybody's like, I want him, but I want to send him back home. Like, that's Cooper. Like, he's the guy that wakes up at 8 o'clock in the morning, doesn't eat breakfast, and starts to walk out the door. And you go, Cooper, where are you going? I'm going to my friend's house. We're going down here to fish. You can't do that yet. It's 8 o'clock in the morning. They're asleep. It's summertime. No, he's not. He already sent me a text and said he's awake. You don't have a phone. How did he send you a text? Like, that's Cooper, right? Like, he's, he's nuts. Like, he's awesome. Like, he comes back from, so my son I was playing in the All-State games over at East Cobb this weekend. My oldest son was for 11U kids. And so 
um, he had a really good weekend. And, and so Cooper goes over there. And so Cooper's the kid who, during the home run derby, is behind the fence stealing all of the perfect game baseballs because he knows they're better than what we have in our garage, and he's going to bring them home with him. That's Cooper. <laughs> right? That's Cooper. So imagine the three-year-old, now four, and Cooper when it's time to read God's word at night before it's time to go to bed. And they've also realized that if they act like a fool, we're going to get through the devotion, but it's now going to take longer so they get to go to bed later. Right? It's hard. And Brady's the people pleaser, so Brady's just like, guys, will y'all all please be quiet? I don't want to make mom and dad mad tonight. And so then the next thing you know, they're fighting. It's hard. Sorry, Mallory looked at me one time and said, after, afterwards, we walked back downstairs, because then it's like, and you know, and Mallory and I are like, part of us is like, we got to do this because it's the right thing to do, and then part of us is like, we got to do this because we're going to make them understand, right? And then part of us is like, can we just please hurry up and do this so we can go downstairs and sit down and relax for a few minutes before we go to bed? Like, y'all know what I'm saying? You're right? And so it's like, it's the worst time of the day, it seems like. I, I heard Dr. Mills used to say at Beach Haven, worst time of the day is Sunday morning when you're getting ready for church. I'm like, no, it's not. It's second worse. Nighttime devotion is the worst. But you got to do it. The Bible teaches that outward discipline yields inward discipline. That's what the Bible teaches. Right? Especially amongst our children. So we got to do it. So teach our children. Teach your grandchildren. Here's the deal. You're like, well, and so some of you may be sitting here and you're like, well, I don't have children. I have grandchildren. My dad is amazing at this. Like when they spend the night with him, he's like, boom. Let me, let me share something with you, right? Um, and, and, I mean, I've just watched it. it is, you know, he'll, he'll try to uh, sneak in bits of information. My mom does the same thing. And, and so it, it's really cool to see them, like, pouring into the grandchildren. And, and it's not like, hey, let's sit for them. It's not like, hey, let's sit down and do a devotion, per se. It, it's more so, hey, let me read you this book. And my mom's got all these stacks of books, and, you know, they've got a Bible story in them or whatever, Right? But it, it's teach your children, teach your grandchildren, no matter how hard it is. Secondly, share the stories of how he's worked in your life. This is really important for a church. Because when you start sharing, and now here's the deal, you don't want to cross into the, oh, the good old days. You don't want to cross into that. Right? Y'all know what I'm saying? Because the good old days never were as good as we think they were, right? However, the reality is, is that when you share the way that God worked in the midst of a church, I, I, I'll give you a perfect example. I hate using other churches in an area when I'm preaching at a different church, but this is a really good example, so I don't know what else to do. Beach Haven was talking about renovating their worship space, and one of the things that kind of flipped it over the top when they finally decided to actually do it was the fact that they had went to some of their founding members, like some of the older founding members, and were like, tell us the stories about what you guys did when you built the current worship space. And so some of those senior adults who weren't founding members and didn't pay the price when it was time to build the current worship space, like the, the 50 and 60 window, not the 70 and 80, because the 70 and 80 window, they were the ones that like paid the price, right? They paid for the building, all that kind of stuff. But the 50 and 60 group, they hadn't. So who did we get grief out of? It was the 50 and 60 group because they hadn't done the work that the older group had. But when that older group started going, hey, let me tell you what we did to get that thing built then guess what? It impacted the next generation. Do you see what I'm saying? It was the coolest thing in the world. Like, it really was. You're like, oh, wow, that, that's kind of neat. And, and so share the stories of how he's worked in your life. 
I, I mean, I can tell you, I'll give you an example. I can tell you, like, all the stories about my granddad. I, I can tell you about how that, that, that he, he was, I mean, he was, a, he was an alcoholic and a drug addict, and he sang in the bars. He was a country music guy and sang in the bars and all that. And, and, and Jesus got a hold of his life, and he became a preacher and a southern gospel singer. <laughs> Like, that's what happened. I, I can tell you the stories of, of, of my, my dad and their childhood and how that my, my older uncles and my older aunt and my, my only aunt, the three oldest, like their childhood was vastly different than my dad's and his younger brother. Because they've shared it. They've shared how God worked in their life. Over and over and over again to the point that I'm like, yeah, dad, I've heard that story. Share the stories. I love this one. Let them see the work of the Lord. Let them see the work of the Lord. One way you can do this is doing ministry together. Do ministry together with your children. Do ministry together with your grandchildren. Take a mission trip and take, take the, the young ones in tow with you. Right? You go out and canvas these neighborhoods. Take your kids. Take your teenagers with you. Let them see God work. Right? I, I mean, you want to get them excited about what's happening at Forest Heights? Get a movement of God happening at Forest Heights and let those younger folks see what's happening. And they will get pumped. They will get excited. They'll see it with their own eyes. Here's the deal. There's a promise of ju in Judges. There really is. The promise of Judges, you're like, how's there a promise in Judges? These folks were continually doing terrible, awful things. Well, God kept sending Judges. And God has a plan for his people. And the promise of judges is that ultimately, who comes? Jesus. But there's also a warning. The promise is that God's work will continue. The warning is, but when and where? The warning is, but when and where? So as I close this out tonight, what I would encourage you is this. Impacting the next generation is hard. You're like, you said you would encourage us. It, it is. It's hard. Because it's so different. The context is so different. And in Athens, Georgia, it's so different. The way we do campus ministry is so different. Different. When I tell other BCMs around the state the changes we've made over the last two or three years and how we do campus ministry now at the University of Georgia, their jaws hit the floor. Because one thing that's happened is, is, is as 316 just gets bigger and bigger as it moves further and further up, I mean, we're almost, I mean, I know this is hard to believe, but like Athens, the metro Atlanta area of doing church, church has impacted us in a, in a drastic way. Think about how many church plants there are in Athens now. Right? Think about the fact that Bethlehem just put a place in Oconee. Right? Think about the impact that Athens Church has had in this area. Right? It's impacted the context in which we do church. Now, I'm not saying we should all go be Athens Church. Lord knows that's not what I'm saying. But what I'm saying is this is that it's impacted the context in which we must do things, right? And it's impacted how we can reach the next generation because somebody's going to get them. Somebody's going to get them. And the sad part is, is that what we're seeing 
across our country today is that a lot of the churches that are getting them are what I like to call theological light. They really are. What we need are churches that preach and teach God's word, that tell the stories of how God has moved in their life, that show that example in the way that they live their life and the way that they do ministry. And listen to me. But yet, don't allow idol worship to infiltrate what they're doing. That's what we need. And I'm telling you, you've got an opportunity. You do. You do. My prayer is that you don't miss it. I want to pray for you guys tonight. Lord, I thank you so much for this church. I thank you for their legacy. I thank you for the impact that they've made in this community over the years. I thank you for the partnership that they've had with our BCM. I thank you for the investment that they've made in college students through that. I thank you for the investment they've made in the next generation. Lord, we know that there, there is a transition that's taken place. And Lord, we know that there is an opportunity. That there's sort of a crossroads in the sense of being at this place of determining what will Forest Heights look like five years down the road, ten years down the road, fifteen years down the road, twenty years down the road. Lord, help them not to miss the opportunity. Help them to let the next generation, see your work here so that the next generation of this community doesn't end up like what we see in Judges chapter 2. Lord, we love you. We thank you that even in the midst of all the struggles that we face in this world, that we know your work will continue. Lord, my prayer is, is that you would let it be here in this place. In your name we pray. Amen.